Hey, welcome back to Dad Conversations. Today I spoke to Ethan Chandler. Ethan is an incredible tattoo artist, a father, and a cancer survivor. We discussed his career, the tattoo industry in general, his experience being diagnosed with cancer, doing radiation and chemo, and then discussed his childhood, general philosophy, and dad life. You may notice it's a little more informal than an average episode, and that's because Ethan is my old stepbrother. We met as 11 and 13 year old kids and promptly began living together and doing typical stupid preteen stuff. This was half podcast episode, half two old friends catching up and goofing off after being apart for way too long. So fair warning there. Uh, Ethan is very humble, thoughtful, open, just a good dude. If you enjoy this conversation, please go ahead and subscribe to the show. If you're feeling really generous, you can leave a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or your favorite uh, platform for podcasting. The next episodes will include a software salesman from Michigan, an OBGYN doc who ran for U.S. Senate in North Carolina, a restaurant manager in Charleston, and a viral YouTuber from Utah. I'll talk with each of them about their different areas of expertise, their life stories and philosophies, and of course, their approach to being dads. All right, time to hear from Ethan. Enjoy. chat for a long time man thanks for coming on for sure man it's been way too long an incredible tattoo artist you survived a real serious bout with cancer and most importantly to me you're my old step bro so (laughs) we got got plenty to talk about oh yeah um i feel like i'm going to be telling you a lot of things that you already know but i'm going to try to keep that in mind and uh see how people listening to this probably don't know as much about or know that we know as much about each other as you know all of that but (laughs) yeah man cool so let's start with your your career um i remember when we were kids you were you seemed to be pretty uh artistically inclined you were sketching a lot of artwork um if i remember right i'd say the first times i saw you drawn it wasn't uh you know, Picasso style, uh, wasn't necessarily the best, but you like, feel like every <laughs> six months or a year, like you got, you took a major, uh, leap in your abilities. And then, um, by the time you're in high school, really good. And as an adult, like you now post incredible tattoos that you give. Um, so like, I, could you just walk us through your journey as a tattoo artist, like how you got started and, and, um, any of the kind of major, talking points uh from the time you began till now yeah um i really appreciate that man um so i've always loved drawing i've always loved painting uh like you said you know as a kid you know i wasn't the best or anything um but uh i i had a really good teacher in high school um who really kind of helped me hone in a lot of the things that i was trying to do and everything uh so i graduated high school and tattooing was still illegal in South Carolina. Um, I started thinking about tattooing around the 10th grade. That was whenever I really started to notice different tattoos and tattoo styles. Um, a lot of the like old school Sailor Jerry kind of stuff was what really kind of stuck in my head. And I just really loved the way they looked. They had a lot of power to them and everything. And I 
wanted to try to pursue that, but it uh, it didn't get legalized in South Carolina until 2006, which is when I graduated high school. So I knew I was going to have to either go to Florida, Georgia, North Carolina um, to learn, but that just really financially wasn't in the cards at that point. So I went to school for graphic design. I was in school for three years and just I hated going to school. I didn't really like graphic design the way that I thought I was going to. So I um, I decided to drop out one night and I started looking around at different shops. I was in Florence, South Carolina at the time. I started looking around at different shops and I just ended up getting lucky. I found a guy that was willing to teach me and his style and my style kind of meshed up really well. And we got along really well personality wise. So um, I really just lucked out and he took me on and just kind of been doing it ever since. That's cool. It's in some ways, I feel like uh, tattooing, it's like medicine where no one's like, yes, yeah, sign me up for the guy who's in training. <laughs> I, you know, everyone wants to work with the pro who's been doing it their whole career has a steady hand <laughs> and all that. So like, how, what are those first few uh, months or, or years of being, uh, I don't know if it's an apprentice, but, you know, kind of learning under his, his tutelage, what's that like? And how do you take on patients? Like, do you just do the simple ones or how, how does that work? Oh, you'd be surprised, man. Um, you know, whenever you're first starting out, you're doing them for free and, uh, you'd be surprised how many people are stupid enough to let you do a free bad tattoo on them. <laughs> uh, so starting out, it was um, when you do an apprenticeship, you don't tattoo for a long time. Uh, it's a lot of learning all the basics of like setting up, breaking down, watching how tattoos are done. You practice on a lot of grapefruits, fake skins, that sort of thing. Um, then once you get to a certain point, you're allowed to tattoo friends of yours. And so it's finding friends that like, it's a nice mix of they trust you enough and they're stupid enough to let you tattoo. Them. <laughs> um, my first tattoo was on my best friend, D'Artagnan, who whenever I first started talking about tattooing back when we were 14, 15, he was like, well, yeah, man, whenever, whenever you get started, you know, I want to, I want to be your first one. And I was like, dude, I'm gonna hold you to that. So I got to that point in my apprenticeship and I called D'Artagnan up and I was like, Hey man, you remember what we were talking about? Uh, what you doing on Tuesday? So he came down and we spent like kind of all day just like being super nervous and stressed out until finally the guy that taught me how to tattoo my mentor, he was like, all right, you ready? And so we got started and um, did a tattoo that should have taken about an hour and a half. It took me over five hours to do and <laughs> just a ball of nerves the whole time. But slowly that sort of subsides, you know, you start to get more and more comfortable and starting out you do mostly uh mostly more simple things um like kind of quick easy things that you can hide some mistakes in um what are some of the most common requests for sort of entry-level tattoos i think it really kind of changes over time but uh at that point you know this was 10 years ago a lot of people were asking for infinity symbols. That was the the big common thing back then. Um, I learned how to tattoo in a street shop, which is, you know, mostly walk-ins and 
not a whole lot of custom stuff going on. So it was a lot of flash off the walls, a lot of baby names, um, and a lot of lettering. That was that was the bulk of the first like two years that I tattooed. I would say. Mm. And what's it like? Um, professional development is it a matter of just putting in the hours and getting the experience or is there like ongoing training or seminars like how do you develop your craft uh practice um most of it's you know on the job training sort of stuff and it's a lot of mistakes it's a lot of you know doing different things and a lot of it has to do with how much work you want to put into it you can just kind of come in do whatever walks in and just try to like get better as you go or you can spend a lot of time drawing and painting at home and trying to hone in how different shapes are going to work with each other and how different color palettes are going to bounce off each other and what's going to work within itself to make a better tattoo like I'd say 90% of tattooing is preparation um, and knowing what you're going to do and having a game plan going into it. My art teacher in high school, that was the big thing that he tried to drive into us. And I think about it every day is plan the work and then work the plan. And if you fail to plan, then you plan to fail. And that's what goes into really everything that I do. Hmm. There are some you know, conventions and seminars and webinars and that sort of thing where I've taken some on like color theory. Um, some guys will teach classes on how to apply different techniques a little bit better. But those are pretty few and far between. They're a little harder to find, especially now that, you know, conventions aren't really going on. But most of it is really just what you're going to seek out and try to do yourself. Hmm. Do you like, do you follow other tattoo artists and take inspiration from stuff you see out there and then kind of recreate and, and put your own style on it? Or, or do you kind of keep your mind clear of what anyone else is doing to focus only on your style? Oh, no, I absolutely look at what other people are doing. Um, I take a lot from the guys that I work with. Um, I'm with a really good group of people right now that everyone does something a little bit different, but we can all kind of build off of each other with what mm -hmm. we're doing. Um, Instagram's been a, a crazy development as far as tattooing goes. It used to be if you wanted to see tattoos that other guys were doing, you had to go to a convention and look through portfolios or go to another shop and look through portfolios and see what pictures they had printed off or wait until a magazine came out once a month and then study through that magazine constantly. But, you know, now I can look and see what 25 people have done in the last 30 minutes and kind of pull things from that. So, um, you do have to put yourself into everything that you do, but it's really kind of impossible not to feed off of what you've seen and what you're trying to emulate and everything like that. Sure. 
and it helps bring out the best in in what you do because you can take inspiration from it yeah that's cool oh yeah um what when you look back over a career of a, a ton of really incredible artwork like do you have you've given some i do um my wife actually she got a I tattooed her probably four years ago. Um, there's a, a pretty iconic Sailor Jerry Flash painting of a mermaid. She's sitting on an anchor. She's holding a little baby mermaid. And so I kind of took that shape and built off of that and redrew it, made the face the way that I do faces and changed the baby mermaid up to have like curly brown hair and everything like my daughter and uh did it that way and so the the mother mermaid she's got like a really sort of like deep rich green tail that's like shows a little more maturity and stuff and the baby mermaid has this really nice kelly green bright young tail on it and everything and that's probably my favorite tattoo that i've done if if i could pick one out Cool. And what's new in the tattoo industry now versus five or 10 years ago? Uh, I think social media has probably been the biggest, um, the biggest thing that's really changed up from whenever I started about 10 years ago, there was, you know, MySpace and Facebook back then, but there wasn't really a whole lot like, to put a picture up on MySpace, you know, you had to take it with a digital camera, scan it into a computer, upload it. And so, <laughs> you know, things were moving a lot slower back then. Now it's, you can take a picture and post it on there instantly. And, you know, I've seen, I've seen guys that are tattooing for two years now that are doing things that 10 and 15 and 20 year tattooers aren't doing just because they're exposed to a lot more. Um, I think that's been the biggest change from whenever I started. I would. So one the internet in general is just that um, buyers walk into a purchasing situation, more educated. They kind of, they've already looked at some options and come in. I would assume in uh, tattooing, they pro more often do they come in like, Hey, here's some cool designs I saw online. Can you make something like this? Or, um like does that happen and if so what's the like how often does that happen oh absolutely that um that happens every single day um <laughs> it's it's pretty rare that someone comes in with no prior knowledge or anything anymore it's that anyone comes in and just says like i'm thinking something along these lines and then just sort of explains it most of the time someone has a picture of something that's either subject matter or style that they're wanting to do and a lot of people are a lot more informed now that I don't have people coming to me saying like, Hey, I want this like super realistic elephant head or anything. You know, they, they see my stuff and they're like, Oh, this guy does like very cartoony kind of stuff. Like I'm probably not going to ask him to do this hyper realistic photo style tattoo. So it makes my life a lot easier and it's a lot easier to kind of guide people in the right direction now because people are more informed. Gotcha. Are there one or two things that you wish the average person knew about 
tattoos or the tattoo industry? Um, I think that a lot of people should know that if somebody comes in asking for something and the person doing the tattoo is trying to turn them down for any reason, that there's probably a good reason behind that. The double-edged sword of people being more informed and more informed buyers in that sort of mentality is that people come in with this preconceived notion of they want it this way and they want it exactly this way. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we'll tell people that, you know, something needs to be bigger, something needs to be done differently. And that's coming from years of experience of knowing how tattoos are going to age and how they work within the body because it's it's a medium that's not like any any other art form that you have to think about the fact that the way it looks now is not going to be the way that it looks 10 years from now if it's done a certain way so a lot of people are coming and they'll want something that's too small everything's kind of too tight together and we'll say that it needs to be done a certain way and you know pre-pandemic whenever we were having multiple people coming in at a time along with the person getting tattooed there's always someone in the background being like oh you just you you got to tell them exactly how you want it and you know you can't back down and stuff it's like we're trying to give you the best tattoo that we can and no one likes to turn away money so the reason that we're trying to say we can't do it this way or it shouldn't be done this way there's a very specific reason behind that and i think that's what i really wish people would understand more. And most people are pretty understanding of that whenever we tell them why, but right. there's always a little bit of give and take there. That's a really good point because you're a professional and you know what, what you can and can't do and you know what you should and shouldn't do. And that person's like, oh, I want a budget and you just want me to do a bigger tattoo because it's more money. And you're like, look, you don't, you just trust me. You don't want that. This is why. And that, anyway, that's cool. I, you know, it's like I'm not some 14 year old in in uh, in the corner of the shop class trying to do this. You know, it's like this is a I'm a professional. You know, oh yeah, it's it's one of the few industries that the customer is not always right, and you have to listen to why, and that's yeah, that's that's all I really have to say. Cool. Okay, I know you have several tats. Do you have a count of how many? I have no idea. I I tried counting in the shower about six months ago, and I got dizzy spinning around. So <laughs> okay, so if you could only keep one, like somehow there was a you know magical flip uh, snap of the fingers, and all of them go away except for one. Which <laughs> one would you keep? Um, probably my back. Uh, I guess because it takes up the most space, and so if I was if I was going to get to have one, you know, that would be the most coverage that I would have. So, okay. And what is it? Uh, so it's based on an old painting called the Sundance, which was by a tattooer named Bert Grimm. He tattooed from the early 1900s, around like 1915 on through the 60s, I believe. Um, and it's a pretty iconic painting that he did of a Sioux woman who's dancing in front of the sun. 
and then it's got flowers around it and everything. So um, it's a really kind of nice piece of tattoo history that I like carrying around with me. I went on Facebook maybe a year ago for the first time in like three or four years, I needed to go and like get message someone to get an address. And um, at the very top of my feed was a post uh, uh, from you about having cancer and it was blew me away. Obviously we have a ton of mutual friends and, and the algorithm knew that that was one I'd be interested in. But um, anyway, love to hear you kind of tell us like what what's it like to um find out you have cancer um what was the treatment like what um walk somebody through the emotions like love to hear your story uh on on the from before you had it until now i started so i had to give everyone some background uh i had stage 2a rectal cancer which is easily the least sexy version of cancer that you can have. Um, <laughs> I was pooping all the time. I I was going to the bathroom like seven to eight times a day, every single day. Um, and I attributed it to just kind of like changes in body chemicals. Uh, I had quit smoking about four months before that. So I just figured that my body was adjusting to having a different set of chemicals in it and going through like nicotine withdrawals is what I attributed it all to. My wife started suggesting that I go to the doctor um, because I'm stubborn. I resisted it as long as I could because I hadn't been to the doctor in 10 years before that. And so I finally relented I went and saw a GI doctor, like a gastroenterologist, who suggested that we do a colonoscopy to rule out some things. And that's when they found a tumor in my rectum, which is the last section of your large intestine. So they, it was a mass that he found. He said he was going to biopsy it to rule out cancer. And it turned out that that's what it was. So. Uh, the next, the next few weeks were just kind of a whirlwind. Um, you know, they referred me over to an oncologist who I saw like later on that week. So it, everything just kind of felt like a blur, but, uh, it was just a really kind of world crashing moment. Um, It's just really, you know, everything sort of stopped. So I go to the oncologist and he told me, like, pick something that you do every day, do it at the same time, because that's the only thing that you'll really be able to be in control of, because they, they literally tell you this is where you're going to be this time, every day, this time, every day, this time, every day. So uh, we started out, I did... I did radiation and chemo pills for six weeks. And with radiation, I would go every morning to the clinic. You lay on this bed that's, it's a metal bed inside this giant 
spaceship sci-fi machine that spins around you and it it seems like it's just doing an x-ray it's just shooting you know radiation to a certain part of your body and you don't really tell that anything's going on you can't feel it it doesn't really hit you until about an hour later to where you're just absolutely zapped of all of your energy um and then the you know chemo makes you sick of course and did that for six weeks i had a break for a little while until we did um intravenous chemo i started taking a different drug along with the same chemo pills that i was taking with radiation and that one's sort of the real kicker i was taking zolota with in pill form and oxa um oxaplatin i think is what it's called is what i was taking in iv form and it's basically just a poison that kills any of your fast-growing cells which are your the palms of your hands soles of your feet the lining of your esophagus and your hair follicles luckily it didn't cause any hair loss with me um it rarely does that particular form but hmm. it attacks so it attacks the palms of your hands and the soles of your feet makes you hypersensitive to cold so anything under about 65 degrees makes your hands go numb anything lower than about 55 degrees feels like frostbite like you can't touch anything cold um if the floor is cold and your bare feet touch it your feet just go completely dead wow you can't drink anything colder than room temperature um and it just it just feels like shards of glass in your esophagus Ooh. um so that lasted i would do i would do the iv chemo once every three weeks and those side effects would last about two weeks at a time <laughs> yeah. um, so like the first week you're just you're completely dead you're you're not getting off the couch for much you're just kind of zombie moping around and then the second week you know you still have all those weird side effects but you have a little bit of your energy left and then the third week you're kind of back to normal and you have a, a normal week and that's a really nice time because you're coming from like lower than low and then it starts all over again um once you go back in for treatment again so that's gotta be a fascinating got intense highs and lows but it's also predictable so, oh right, this week is going great but next week's gonna be back to rock bottom oh it's a wild ride that's for sure was the introduction of the intravenous chemo planned from the start or did it test did the the cancer necessitate a change in the treatment no um so my oncologist is fantastic uh he's a wonderful doctor he's got enough experience that like as soon as i walked in the door he's like this is what you've got this is how we're going to do it this is how everything's going to go and he just laid it all out for me but he's also young enough that 
in between the time that we did so after i got done with radiation i had a, a two a, about a month gap between treatments and in that gap he went to a conference and they said there's all this data coming out that the order that we've been doing things should actually be switched a little bit so originally we were going to do radiation i uh radiation then surgery then iv chemo but at this conference he was like we've learned that there's no point in doing iv chemo after radiation because we've taken away everything that we're trying to kill so what are we trying to kill at that point we're going to switch it up so he switched the plan up halfway through and it ended up cutting off two months worth of treatment time so my timeline got cut down significantly and i got out of the woods a lot faster um uh sorry what i kind of lost track there what, no, yeah I, I interrupted you um right in the middle but that that is really cool when you have a doctor who's like confident who who's um come like knows what they're doing they're like hey here's what here's how we're going to handle this this is what we got you know can break it down they're not a arrogant a-hole but they're um like they've got a relationship with you but they also like they're in charge and know what they're doing you know it's like really reassuring reassuring oh yeah killer bedside manner like good um so i interrupted you when you were you had just kind of told us a little about the uh, radiation and then the chemo um where does that take us in the story so after iv chemo i finished that up i got diagnosed in uh, july of 2019 i finished up my last round of iv in january of 2020 so after that they wanted me to kind of rest recover make sure my blood cell count got back to normal and then we were going to do surgery to remove that section of my large intestine so everything went the way that it was supposed to so then the pandemic hit and there was a lot of confusion about whether or not things were still going to kind of go along on the timeline or what wasn't going to end up happening, but things worked out. I went in for surgery, my first surgery in May of this year, and they took out either all or some of my large intestine. I'm still not really sure how much I've got left, but uh, so he basically said it was like a like a water hose. You just cut out a section. You bring it down, you reattach that section, and then that needs some time to heal, and you can't have fecal matter uh, passing over a fresh wound or anything. So to solve that problem, what they do is they do what's called an ileostomy, which is basically a colostomy, but it comes from your small intestine as opposed to an opening in your large. So they bring your small intestine to the surface of your stomach, and then all of your food waste passes through this opening into a pouch that you empty and change and do all of that. And that gives your large intestine time to heal. 
without anything passing over it and without it really having to work. So I had that for almost three months and then I was able to reverse that, take that down, reattach everything and poop like normal. So uh, that was kind of the last thing we did. And now I'm just kind of in uh, not, I think you have to be technically cancer free for a year before you're in remission, like official remission. But now I'm just doing mm-hmm. regular checkups every few months for the next decade or so. It's scary whenever somebody young gets cancer because they don't all have happy endings, but um, always amazing to see the happy ending. Um, and so yeah. far, so good. So I was incredibly lucky. Yeah. Uh, the point that we caught it was uh, stage 2A, which from most of the things that I've read, that's literally the best time to catch this particular type of cancer because it's large enough that it responds to treatment, but it hasn't metastasized. Uh, I can never say this word right, but that where it spreads to other organs. So you're not, yes, there you go. Um, Yes, you're not chasing it anywhere at that point. You're it's still in one spot and it's still where you can just work on it there and you're not having to worry about treating other organs and everything. And is that just a random one or is it can it be genetic? Like do you have any idea of what causes it? It can be genetic. Uh typically with people my age getting it, it's usually genetic, but I don't have any family history of it. We did some genetic testing um, to see if I carry any markers, and I don't. So it's really just kind of a fluke thing. Um, that's that's the weird thing about cancer, I guess. Is sometimes you have cancer. I I don't know. Whew, man, well, glad you made it, dude. Was it, I mean, on it. Uh, this might gross some people out, but. I feel like if after three months of colostomy, I, I would be so nervous to like have my first poop after that. Like, just worried. Like, what if it's not all the way healed? Like, is that, that <laughs> dude? You had to be am, nervous, right? I have never been more excited to shit in a toilet. I was so <laughs> stoked. I cannot wait <laughs> to sit down on a commode and take a dookie. This is going to be awesome. The uh, I. So whenever you have that kind of surgery or really probably any surgery that involves your digestive tract, they give you um, drugs that stop your stop everything from moving and you're on a liquid diet until you have your fir- like until you pass gas for the first time, because that's like an indicator that things are starting to move the way that they're supposed to. So after that, you're allowed to go on partially solid foods, which are like grits and jello and stuff like that, like mashed potatoes, like any kind of like soft foods. So I'm in the hospital after my second surgery. The nurse is like, yeah, so the doctor said you're allowed to, you're only supposed to be on liquid foods right now. I was like, yeah, he said like, you know, chicken broth and like cheeseburgers and chicken tenders. Like those are cool too. And she's like, no, you're not, you're not getting (laughs) but um so they told me about like i had to fart before i was allowed to eat anything beyond like 
just chicken and beef and vegetable broth. And um, so like the first time I ripped one, dude, I was so stoked. I was like, yes, here we go. Mashed potato time. Let's do it. <laughs> do you have to like call in the nurse? You're like holding it like everybody. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to want to hear this. Thing. So while you have the the bag hooked up, you're able to eat like solid foods, right? Yeah, I was on a what's called a low residue diet, which is any foods that you can chew up small enough, like any foods that you can chew up to the consistency of mashed potatoes, you're allowed to eat. Um, which it limits a lot more than. I thought and stuff like I've never missed broccoli so much. Like you can't eat anything that is high fiber just because you have a really small opening in that um, what's called your stoma, which is the, the opening that your small intestine makes on the surface of your stomach. It's a really small opening. So it's really easy for food residue to block and stop. Um, And you have what's called a blockage. And that's basically where you're, constipated but nothing is moving throughout your entire digestive tract at that point and it's incredibly painful luckily i never experienced that while i was going through it but i read some horror stories from other people that made it where i was like all right well let's let's really pay attention to what i'm eating for once in my life yeah Mm. and when you're having rough weeks on chemo is it best to just like eat ice cream and and watch netflix like what do you i mean because you don't feel like doing anything right like i mean best to just chill right no you i'm sure other people have different experiences but i really i i could not find it in me to do anything whatsoever um the most important thing is just kind of listening to your body and uh my my nurse practitioner that works in close proximity with my oncologist she told me like eat whatever you feel like eating whenever you feel like eating because it it really kills your appetite for a lot of people um you a lot of foods will make you nauseous a lot of foods just feel like they just completely mess you up um but that's really just all i did i i just Whenever I felt like I could eat something, I ate whatever sounded good. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of appetite loss during mine. Um, not as much as a lot of people that I've talked to. Mm. But yeah, it's I uh, I I have this like innate need to like kind of be doing something at all times. So whenever I was laid up like that, you know, for a week at a time, like usually the first day was like, all right, well, this is kind of nice. Let's just, let's chill out. Let's, you know, watch through three seasons of 30 rock and like take a couple naps and we'll call it a day. But by the second and third day, you're just, it's a lot of cabin fever going on. You want to get up, you want to get out, you want to do something or anything, but it's just, it just grinds on you. And I think that was one of the hardest parts of that little section. Man. Um, how do you feel like this, ha- having 
cancer in what your early 30s mm-hmm. yeah um, um I'm thir- i was 31 when i was diagnosed okay do you feel like this long term um has changed your life and in what way uh I think spiritually it kind of did the biggest thing on me. Um, it's a, it's an interesting thing to know, you know, you, you always know that you're going to die at some point. Um, it's a, it's a pretty heavy thing to, to know that it could be soon. Um, I think that was what, got me the hardest at first was not really knowing whether or not it was at a curable stage before we did any sort of staging and everything you know i i had a good solid week where i had just kind of come to terms with all of that i didn't think it was as much of like being afraid to die as so much as like being afraid to leave all of the people that i love um that's a that's a a really life-changing sort of experience is to really have to come to terms with your own mortality uh i'd like to say that it you know makes it where you don't want to take every day for granted but you definitely still have days where you just like you just want to fart around and not really get a whole lot done but i think that's the the biggest kicker and then later whenever i found out that it was at a curable stage and it was a, a a stage that was going to be manageable and everything it's almost like a another sort of whiplash where you're like okay i'm not gonna die now what the hell am i gonna do with the rest of my life now like mm. it it's a really it's a strange way to shift gears and it's it's something that I, I kind of still sort of come to terms with every day. You know, the song, um, live like you were dying. Yeah. I always think of that one, but then I'm like, probably not a good <laughs> idea because I would go get like 10 new credit cards and max them all out, you know, <laughs> and that's not going to be good tomorrow if I don't die. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey man, you ever done a backflip on a four wheeler? <laughs> Let's try it now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's a delicate balance on um, trying to figure out how to re- live the rest of life. Oh yeah, what's that? Yeah. A helicopter? Yeah, put it on the tab. <laughs> Let's go for it. <laughs> Let's roll. Uh, <laughs> man, thanks for telling uh, telling me all about it. Um, that's a incredible experience um i'm sure that no one who who hears that can really imagine exactly what it's like but i think that that is um helpful to get a better vision of what it might have been like so i appreciate you opening up on a on a personal topic there oh yeah for sure dude so let's let's uh, get to know you a little better. Um, we'll go into kind of origin story and um, when we grow up, what type of kid were you? 
and what were you interested in? And then this is this might be this is one of the first instances where I kind of know most of these answers. Uh, so I might fact check you if needed. <laughs> but anyway, um, proceed and uh, tell me about little Ethan. Well, I can tell you right off the rip. Um, I was like super personable, super talkative. <laughs> I'm waiting for you to step in at any point now. <laughs> um, I grew up in Lugoff, South Carolina, a really small town on the outskirts of Columbia. Um, lived all around as a kid, but 90% of my childhood was there. Um, really quiet, shy kid. Um, had a pretty close-knit group of friends, but didn't really venture too far outside of that. Um, like I said earlier, I've always loved drawing, always loved painting, and that's besides like skateboarding and pretending like I knew how to play music, that's pretty much all I did, and video games. Um, really kind of like uneventful childhood for the most part. Um, I grew up with two sisters that I lived with. Um, I had another half sister later on, like whenever I was a teenager, she was born. Um, growing up, it was for the most, like most of the time of my childhood, it was like just me, my sisters and my mom. Uh, my parents split whenever I was in the first grade. Um, and then my mom married a pipeline welder for a little while that we moved to Virginia for a year and then Alabama for a week before we left him and moved back to South Carolina, like basically in the middle of the night um, to get away from that. And then my mom married your dad and you know, it was me, my sisters, and then you and your older brother. Um, I'm going to leave names out on all of this for privacy's sake and stuff. But sure, sure. You know who I'm talking about. You're familiar. <laughs> um, and then after your dad and my mom, like their marriage didn't work out. It ended up being. Uh, just us again for another few years until I graduated high school. Um, graduated and I moved down to Florence, South Carolina to go to Francis Marion University for a little while. Um, I just kind of dicked around in college too much, ended up like kind of flunking out. And I was pretty much like I dropped out before I was going to fail out. And um then started tattooing yeah that's like if the the college is about to fire you and you're like you can't fire me i quit yeah <laughs> <laughs> like screw you guys never liked it here anyway that's how it was uh, i got an email from my english professor that was like dude i can't keep vouching for you on these absences man like they're gonna <laughs> drop you. things are gonna be things are gonna be weird and i was like well i tell you what what if i just don't show up anymore then what are you gonna do <laughs> Oh, yeah, man, man. I can't. I can't help you out at all with that. 
And then it turns out he was my English teacher from high school. So I go to a softball game, like a, my mom's like church softball team is playing. He's there and he's like, Mr. Chandler, I hear you're not doing so good at Francis Marion. I was like, funny story, man. So back to oh, find man. you. Man. Um, I remember several really good stories from our <laughs> being kids together. I remember unsuccessfully trying to make some bombs. Um, mm-hmm. when I I feel like I must have only been like thirteen, which you'd have been like eleven. That was I'm like I've got an eleven year old now. I, I it's amazing <laughs> to think what we were up to at that age. I, I alleged. I Allegedly, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, if that were to have happened, I mean, but um, also a field across the street from our house caught on fire. That it seemed like we were playing with firecrackers around the time that it caught on fire, but I don't know if they're connected. Weird coincidence, but um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> we weren't there. Uh, no, no uh, evidence, but um. I do remember one one thing that I think was really funny that um, is worth sharing, which is as um, kind of a dick stepbrother move. We were <laughs> watching uh, somehow on TV the um, Scream, the horror movie with the guy wearing the mask was on uh-huh. and he's going around killing people and with a knife. It was pretty scary, even though it was the TV version. I'm sure they had edited it a little bit, but it was still, you know, it's a creepy movie when you're like 13. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I'd seen it before also knew that I happened to have a scream costume in the closet in the other room that you didn't know oh, about. God. And so I went in during the like commercial break. I was like, Oh, I gotta go to the bathroom, go grab the mask and the whole outfit. <laughs> if anyone knows the scream movie that that was a freaky outfit but um i wait till the next murder scene right in the middle of somebody getting stabbed i jump in and go for you and dude, you didn't hesitate like you people have fight or flight you got fight because you went straight for my neck and and i was like the tables turned very quickly i was like it's just me it's just me like uh, I was I was proud of you, man. I was like, man, don't nobody needs to mess with Ethan because he will kill him. <laughs> I remember that so well now. I've blocked that out of my memory up until this point. So there's probably gonna be some therapy sessions in the future for that. <laughs> that's kind of a dick move by a stepbrother, isn't it? God, that's so funny. There was a the one that sticks out the most in my mind um so you you've always been a tall guy like even whenever we were like r- probably right around the same age like you know you were probably 13 14 um you just had some reach man like there was there was no messing with you but uh so you know i had been like kind of picking at you a little bit that day and pushing your buttons a little bit and you had finally like kind of started poking back at me and like it had gone just a little too far and i was like this is it man this is it i'm I'm going for it and so i took a swing at you and i hit you one time and it didn't phase you at all you just like gave me eyes and i was like oh shit so i took off running down the hallway you started <laughs> like, 
we come into the kitchen and I rounded the table. We're doing that thing where we're like kind of chasing each other around the table a little bit. And I grabbed a chair and threw it down behind me, like right in front of you. So you hit shin to chair, flip over it. And you're like laying on the ground, like holding your leg, like Peter Griffin style. And like all of a sudden I was like, oh no, I, I, I've really fucked up now. And so I like turned around, look at you and you're like, oh man, oh, that was such a good move. Oh, I'm not even mad, dude. That's impressive. <laughs> and like the whole fight of diffuse, like right then, I was like, "Cool, I'm, I'm gonna live to see another day." All right. Wow, dude, I blocked that one. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> Maybe I was trying to. Now that I was in a vulnerable position, I was trying to be nice and hope you wouldn't hurt me anymore. <laughs> yeah, you might have remembered the screen mask incident and be like, "This is this is not the dude to mess with." <laughs> for real uh, but i was definitely the dude to mess with i was not a tough guy at all well until uh, you need to strangle someone <laughs> um, well um since this is the dad conversations podcast and it's about dads um tell me like what's one thing that you feel like your dad really nailed as a father um if you have any stories, always love to hear them. But um, just in general, like, what's one thing your dad does well? Um, so me and my dad, like, we've never really had, like, a, a typical father-son, you know, beaver-cleaver sort of relationship. Um, my dad's, like, he's definitely kind of a party guy. Um, and just a, a good time sort of dude. But uh, I feel like I've always felt safe to tell my dad anything. Like I've I've never felt like there was any topic that was off limits. There was never any problem that I had that I couldn't go to my dad with and know that I was going to get some sort of answer or some sort of comfort, whether it was the right answer or the right advice is up for debate, but I always knew that I could always go to him with anything. Um, and if there's one thing that I could emulate, I would want it to be that level of trust and um, companionship and stuff with, with my children that my dad had, has, still has, but you know. Yeah, whatever. for sure. As you say that, I'm like, man, that is such a good point. And I would like to be that type of dad where my kids always know they come to me. But how I'm curious to know what did what was it about him or what did he do that fostered that type of uh, openness and, and made sure that you felt like that channel was always open? I think it's just because, you know, we've always been buds. Um I think me and my dad have argued five times in my life. Uh, now, I, I don't know if that's the healthiest father-son relationship um, in the world, but I think, like, we've just, he's always just kind of been a, an eternal kid in a lot of ways, and we've always found something to connect on throughout my entire life. like. Even 
now whenever there's things about our personality that are like total dichotomies, there's always just something that we have that we can kind of find middle ground on, whether it's like music or, well, it's usually music, but um, music, sports, that sort of thing. Like we can always kind of connect with stuff like that. And there's a real sort of bond there that, that he's always just kind of nailed. That's awesome. There's a lot of people that could not say that their dad has that, that they have that kind of relationship. So that is something to be grateful for. Oh yeah, no doubt. So you are a husband, you're a full-time tattoo artist, you're a dad, you're probably a busy guy. You also overcame cancer. What do you like to do? What are your hobbies? Dude, I am super boring. I draw, I watch TV and play video games. That's that's about all I really do. Um, if I do get some spare time, I love building stuff. Um, I love putting stuff together. I love doing projects around the house. That's That's really where I find a lot of kind of joy is just improving something like big or small, you know? Yeah. Do you have any like favorite shows or uh, games? Um, my favorite series has got to be the fallout series. Uh, I love anything of post-apocalyptic. It's kind of a perfect marrying of my two favorite genres, which is like Westerns and sci-fi. It, it kind of blends those really well. Mm-hmm. Um, are, as far as like TV shows, uh, lately I've been watching a lot of Portlandia. I love, um, any kind of like dumb comedy, like the dumber, the better. Uh, there's a show on Netflix called, I think you should leave. And it is the funniest thing I think I've ever seen in my life. It is the stupidest sketches back to back. Each episode's about 15 minutes long. And each one of them is absolute pure gold. It is so funny. Cool. I have to check that out. You know, when you mention, um, it's like sci-fi and Western, that's such a good description for post-apocalyptic stuff. And um, you remember the movie I Am Legend? Yeah, that's a good one really good movie not being shown on tv a whole lot these days yeah that? i think it, I think it's a little <laughs> a little close <laughs> i know i'm like i feel like everybody's like hey uh let's let's not pull it let's not do this right now <laughs> we're trying to get everybody to take the vaccine <laughs> yeah man it's, you know um, when you when you strip humanity down to just like you know what what's the bare essentials and what is it that makes us a species? Like if you take away every advancement of modern day, like what would people act like? I think that's just a a really fun kind of like thought experiment to go. Totally. Um, All right. When, what is a purchase of a hundred dollars or less that has most positively impacted your life in the last six months or a year? Long John's long John underwear. 
like the underwear that comes down to your ankles. For real? Oh my god, I love them. I wear them every single day that they're clean. Like I have like four pairs and I just cycle through them. And whenever like those run out and they're dirty, I'm like, maybe I should go ahead and do laundry. Like I, I don't I don't have that much laundry to do, but maybe I should go ahead and do laundry so I have clean long britches to wear. They're wow. so cozy right now. Like I hate being cold and anything other than under like 60 degrees is freezing to me. So long underwear, man. I love them. Hmm. All right. I'll have to check that out sometime. Um, all right. Well, in your opinion, what are the three to five best fast food or fast casual restaurants? We could do a whole nother episode on this. I love fast food. Um, three out of the top five are all Taco Bell, but <laughs> you're living moss. <laughs> living moss every day. Um, I love Taco Bell. Hardee's makes an incredible fast food burger. Um, McDonald's, I could, if I never ate McDonald's again, I would be totally fine with that. Um, I really like Jimmy John's as far as the sub goes. Um, there's really nothing special about it, but you know exactly what you're getting every time. And the expectations are pretty low. So whenever like anything goes just slightly above that expectation, it's fantastic. I really hope you're not trying to get Jimmy John's as a sponsor anytime soon. Cause I probably just messed that up for you. But, um, yeah. I almost um, became a Jimmy John's um, franchisee at one point. Really? Yeah. Flew out to their headquarters. Had a one of my old buddies like recruited me. He had an investor. Um, so it was like basically three minority partners, and they wanted me to go run the the operation. Yeah. And, and like open restaurants, and you'd open one or two restaurants a year, and and get ten or twenty restaurants, and. And it was great. I talked to some people who um, were into it. And it's like, it's such a fascinating business model. They don't have any hot food. There's nothing to cook there. They mm -hmm. have six types of meat, one type of cheese. They've got like a huge menu. You'd, you'd never know all they have is provolone. And, Dude, um, and they just have everything systematized. It's like checklists and there's no, that they, they deliver your expectations of, um, hitting it exactly how you expect it every time um because they've they've got a plan for everything so um it's a really fascinating business and i ended up not going with them because when i talked to i talked to a guy who has like 70 jimmy johns um in the midwest and the northeast and he was like yeah don't do it he's like He's like, yeah, those partners of yours, you're going to be doing all the work and cutting them a check and you're going to get bitter. You're going to end up in court like I am right now. He's like, don't do it. Do it on your own. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, good to know. And uh, but I didn't end up, you know, I didn't have the capital to do it myself. But um, anyway, it was a, um, I've always, I as I was investigating Jimmy John's, I didn't really like it that much. I started eating it and now I freaking love it. I'm addicted to it. Anytime there's a Jimmy John's, I'm like, yeah, let's go get it. Their the, roast uh, beef is seasoned perfectly. Really? I don't think I ever had the roast. I get the Italian every time. The I think it's the uh, number nine. The number seven, I think. Okay. Or no, nine? Let me check. 
I get the number ten, the Hunters Club. Italian nightclub, I think is the one. Yeah. Oh, um, man, this is a big deal. I'm googling this right now. <laughs> Listen. Um. Yeah, I get the number ten every time. No cheese because I'm lactose intolerant. But like, you heard it? I didn't know you're lactose intolerant. Oh yeah, I got a whole lot of digestive stuff going on, man. Um. Anyway, mostly just cancer and lactose, but that's about it. <laughs> mm. Well, okay, so we got Taco Bell, Hardee's, John's. What's rounding out the top five? Um, I don't, I don't know how prevalent these are, but there's a place down the road from me. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's like a franchised restaurant, but it's called Cairo's. And it's like a Chipotle style Mediterranean food where you like pick out if you want like a bed of rice, do you want it on a pita? And then you pick your, um, your ingredients as you go down. And it's probably the best pita that I've ever had. It's like Cairo's Mediterranean grill mm. is really good. Um, Mo's and Chipotle are both like neck and neck as far as like Tex-Mex Fast food goes. Zaxby's. Jesus, I could go on all day, man. I love fast food. Me too. Here's one I like to ask everybody. How has a failure or significant obstacle in your path set you up for later success? I think failures are one of the most underrated human experiences if I think every single failure that you go through, if you can build off of it, you are just becoming a much better and better at whatever you're doing, whatever you're failing at. Um, are you asking about like specific failures that I've done or. Um, and if there's one that's, that jumps out that maybe felt awful at the time, but turned out to teach you something or set you up for something later that, That'd be cool. Or, or we could just talk in general, but uh, whatever comes to mind. I I don't think I can nail down a specific time, but I've done just to bring it back to tattooing. I've done so many tattoos that uh, like, you know, I'll get done with and I'll be like, Oh yeah, man, that kills. You know, I'm awesome. I'm, I'm really stoked about that. And then I'll look at the picture later and I'm like, geez, that looks awful. Like that part looks awful. I need to do that better. And I just try to drive those into my head as much as possible. And the next time I do something similar, just do that part better. And whenever you can kind of like turn those failures into what they're supposed to be, which is building and learning experiences, that's, it's one of the best things that you can do is to fail. I think in a lot of ways. Yeah. Not being crushed by it, but letting that motivate you to go, go do better next time. Oh Yeah what is something that makes you really happy and not enough people are trying? Um, there's a very specific Twitter account and it's called the lone blockbuster. And the premise of it is, it's the last blockbuster in existence. It's failing, but they're kicking ass at failing every day. And it's just like the day-to-day -day operations of this last fictional blockbuster. 
and it's hilarious. They like whoever runs that Twitter is a fantastic human being, and I owe them a lot of laughter and a big vote of thanks for the comedy that they bring in off of that. The lone blockbuster. Cool. That's that sounds like a good one. Um what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Mm. Mac and cheese is terrible. Ooh. Ooh. It's I'm making, dude. Uh, I will make some next time we get together. I found this recipe. It's like this. It's called Soul Mac and Cheese, and it's um, it's like a really good recipe. And I made a couple modifications to it. And um, I've had three people, three of the last five people that I had it with, told me it was the best mac and cheese they ever had in their life. So, Sean, I'm gonna make I you some, you. dude. And I'm not knocking your culinary expertise whatsoever. But mac and cheese is garbage. Is it because you're lactose intolerant? No, I hated mac and cheese back whenever I could digest milk. Because mm. there's a lot of yeah. <laughs> <sighs> All right, man. <laughs> that's where I lose everyone. Yeah, yeah that's true. That's true. Yeah, like I'm most likely wrong about this, but I will. I'll go to my grave <laughs> without admitting that I'm wrong. Oh. On principle, yeah. <laughs> I'm dying on this hill. Um, all right. Hey, what's something that you have changed your mind on in the last five years? Um, uh, another, like, real superficial one is uh, sushi. Um, I used to hate it. I would eat it, like, once every six months in the first half of a roll. I'd be like, you know, this is pretty good. And then... I would throw the second half of the roll away because I would hate it, but I've come around to where like I can eat sushi every day and absolutely love it. Um, that was just like a very close. Did anything spark that change? No, I have no idea what it was. Um, I might've just gotten something that I hadn't had before and that was the turnaround, but either way um yeah I'm, I'm i'm on team sushi now like there's there's not a whole lot of sushi eaters out there i'm sure but uh you know like i'm here to tell you it's it's a it's a, it's a good product love, love sushi. <laughs> all right in, in the last five years what new belief behavior or habit has most improved your life uh i've I've really kind of strived not to take so many things seriously to really prioritize like what's important, what's not. There's a, a Buddhist philosophy that I've really kind of grabbed onto and subscribed to, which is Wabi Sabi, which is the perfection is in the imperfection that the things about a situation or a piece of artwork or really anything, the parts of it that aren't perfect are what makes it perfect because it 
makes it handmade and that's where a lot of the soul comes from in a lot of situations and and in a lot of things and that's kind of been my driving force to to kind of let go of the things about a situation that aren't perfect and to kind of let go of expectations of things that aren't turning out the way that they should be and to embrace the things that make it human and put the soul into everything. Hmm. So in the last 10 or 15 minutes, tell us uh, a little about your family uh, and describe your parenting style. Uh, so my parenting style has become like a thousand percent more hands-on in the last whenever marches um i don't what is it january so the last 10 months whenever the pandemic sort of started and um we got shut down our industry for in south carolina it was about three months and so i was home every day like uh not to say that i was a hands-off father before but I became a full-time stay-at-home dad for a long time. And even now I, I work, I only work nights during the week cause I'm home with my daughter while she does virtual school and everything. Um, she's six, she's in the first grade. So I don't have to, she has such a handle on things that I don't have to do a whole lot of teaching, but it's a lot of kind of helping keep her on track and everything. Um, So now that I've like kind of taken on the brunt of parenting and the majority of it during the day, I've kind of learned along with the same sort of wabi-sabi thing is just to kind of take everything in stride and I don't really sugarcoat a whole lot of things with her. I don't really try to push too much onto her and just sort of see where she goes with a lot of things. Like I get, I get real hippy dippy in my parenting style because I had a very like being raised by my mom who was a single parent most of my life. Um, she had a very kind of helicopter approach to a lot of things that I'm trying to break away from a little bit with my daughter to where I try to like let her figure out things as much as she can and then step in when I need to once she's reached the point that she needs help with something. Um, I really, um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I know how to really describe my parenting style but it's a lot of her like running into a wall and being like well you ran into a wall so that's why your head hurts kind of thing but um that's kind of how it goes i guess i think whenever 
you become a father, um, especially in the way that I did, where me and my wife, we had been together for about three years. We were engaged. We were getting married in October. And then in August, we found out that we were pregnant with our first child, which is our only child is. So parenthood came a few years before when we were planning on it to be. So you build up a lot of plans and stuff in your head and you really kind of have to shift gears to accommodate and to take care of your kids. And I think if I wanted anything or if there was something that I wish I could have told myself at that point and something that I'd like to tell new dads and upcoming dads is to learn to prioritize and streamline your plans to kind of cut the fat away the interests that you have dive into those head on and let the little offshoots from that just kind of go by the wayside and don't worry about them too much and you just really kind of got to roll with the punches as life brings to you and learn to adjust and learn to do what you got to do when you got to do it. Now you've been married for uh, six or seven years, somewhere around there. And like, in what ways are you a better husband now than three to five years ago? I've kind of learned to put my own bullshit aside and to I've, I've learned to listen a little bit better i've learned to try to understand the things that my wife needs and to try to anticipate those as much as possible um my wife she's in healthcare and she does physical therapy so she's used to working with patients all day and then coming home to me or to take me to treatments and kind of take care of me as well. Whenever I was going through all of my cancer stuff kind of taught me that I, I really need to step up as much as I can when I can, because there are times that I couldn't. And those times were really what I felt was kind of holding me back as a person. So I've really just tried to step up and do as much as I can when I can, I think is the best way to kind of summarize it. Sure. Yeah. You know, it was funny. Um, when my wife and I got married, we did the, I think sometime in our first year or so we did, um, love languages and it was like, you know, we really value spending time together and just, you know, talking about deep stuff and whatever mm -hmm. it was. And then it, we, we redid it maybe four or five years later when we had like three kids under <laughs> the age of four. And, and it was like, I love it when you house, uh, uh, you know, Susan loves it when I help out and do this and, you know, it's much more tactical <laughs> because there's so much to do. Oh. It's just interesting to see the uh, the change.
Yep. My, I like, uh, our like love languages are so different. Me and my wife, we did the same sort of test. Um, it's been a few years since we've done it. I think it'd be really interesting to do it again now just to see how those have changed and evolved over time. But yeah. ours are very like hers are, she responds to doing things for her, like, you know, coming home and the house is clean on the days that I'm home till she gets home and stuff like that. So I've tried to put that in the front of my head as much as possible. And there's another sort of phenomenon with um, mothers and wives, as far as like taking on so much of the mental load of like scheduling and what needs to be done when that I think a lot of time evolutionarily like men just don't really like grab onto as much and I've tried to keep that in the front of my mind as well to think like okay what's coming up that needs to be done that I can go ahead and schedule and get out of the way and take that mental load off and stuff so like the love languages thing is it's such a game changer knowing what your partner needs and what your partner responds to, I think makes such a huge difference in a relationship. For sure. As you look towards the future, tell me one thing you are optimistic about. I think right now, a lot of people in our country, in America, are kind of starting to see the the need that we all have to depend on each other. And the optimist in me is seeing that in a way that hopefully will build and kind of make some societal changes that kind of create a culture that is willing to help out each other and willing to step up and build each other up more. And I, I really hope that that's the way that things are going. When we text or go back and forth on social media, difficult because, you know, it's a strained form of communication in the first place. Plus you don't have, you, you miss out on so much of the spectrum of communication and, and then, um, it's just different, but like when you get people in person, even who have completely different political views or just inclined to see things very, people can get along a lot better when you, when you can see them and talk to them or at least have a phone call, you know, I don't know. I agree. I think that hearing someone's voice humanizes the other person so much more than reading it, because when you read something you read it in a voice that you've already pre-assumed. In addition to the shows you mentioned earlier, are there shows or podcasts that you want to recommend other people to check out? Um, there's a show on Hulu that's a hidden gem. I recommend it to anyone that asks. It's called Moon Boy. It's about a kid growing up in the 80s in Ireland. And he has an imaginary friend played by Chris O'Dowd. Chris O'Dowd was in, he played the cop in Bridesmaids. He was 
one of the three main characters on the IT crowd. Uh, he's a brilliant actor, brilliant comedian, but he plays this kid's imaginary friend who just kind of like guides him through all these misadventures that they get in. Um, the the episode that you did with the guy that started Dope Black Dads kind of reminded me of an episode from Moon Boy where um, the main character is getting kind of bullied by this kid at school. So the dad goes to confront the bully kid's dad and they have like this real intense standoff sort of thing. And it breaks down to where like that dad's kind of scared of his bully kid. And the other dad is kind of frustrated with his like sort of wimpy kid. And they start hanging out like with him and a bunch of other dads that are like, they're like, Hey, uh, so we're going fishing on Friday. Do you want to come along? And he's like, well, I don't really know how to fish. And he's like, I don't really have a fishing pole. It's just the dads hanging out and bullshitting and like trying to like start this like therapy support group with each other where they just sort of like complain about like the stuff that they're going through with their kids and everything. And um, I love that show. I cannot recommend it enough. I just started um, my older sister and her husband watching it and they have nothing but positive reviews as well. I love it. Nice. And uh, what is a good cause you wish more people knew about? I think tons of people probably know about it, but I, I would still just like to throw out St. Jude's Children's Hospital. I think the stuff that they do is fantastic. Um, I when before like two, three years before I got diagnosed, my friend's kid got diagnosed with leukemia at like two years old. And I went to visit them in the hospital. A children's cancer ward is a a remarkably bleak place. And the what St. Jude's does every day is amazing. And I just I want them to be able to continue doing what they're doing. So St. Jude's Children's Hospital, that's if I could plug anyone, that's who I would want to pull up. For sure. Um, Ethan, thank you so much for coming on, man. We've talked about a ton. Um, is there anything that we should have talked about that we didn't cover? Um, you know, I, I, I honestly can't really think of anything, Sean. Thanks so much for having me, man. This was, this was a lot of fun to catch up. It's been way too long and uh, cool to, to hear about your life and, and understand what you're up to, man. So thanks for spreading some wisdom and it's been, it's been <laughs> great to talk to you. Hell yeah, man. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe to make sure you catch new episodes as they come out. If you've already subscribed, please consider sharing an episode with a friend and or rating the podcast in Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. If you have a dad in mind who would make a killer guest, send me a note. If you have a question you'd like me to ask, please share it with me. If you have any other feedback, including but not limited to hate mail, send it on over. You can find me on LinkedIn under the name Sean Radvansky. I always enjoy hearing from listeners, wherever or whoever you are. 
Thank you for joining me as I ask random questions to learn about various topics and hear how these dads live their lives. I enjoy doing these episodes and knowing that you are listening provides extra motivation. So thank you. I hope you make today a good day. See you next time.